Welcome to In the Author's Voice. I'm Jeff Williams. Right now, only about half the world's population has access to the Internet. But that's about to change in a big way. Jim Cashel is a researcher and visiting fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and chairman of Forum One, a web strategy and development firm. His new book, The Great Connecting, examines the emergence of global broadband and how it will likely impact the world. I recently talked with Cashel about his research and what it will mean to have worldwide internet service when there are still many rural areas in the U.S. without reliable broadband. Uh, you're right, Jeff. That there's lots of rural areas across the United States that still struggle with broadband access. Uh, I live in Northern California, and we have our challenges there as well. Uh, despite that, though, uh, you know, almost everybody can get access at work or at school uh, in the United States and in developed countries to the Internet. Uh, over the last 25 years, uh, it's now reached half of the world's population. Um, the remarkable thing about that is half of the world's population still doesn't have the Internet. They're like, what's the Internet? Never heard of it. Is it interesting? Uh, and the people that generally don't have the Internet are, by and large, living in rural areas and developing countries around the world. Uh, in environments where they often don't have access to information, to good education resources, to health information, to banking, government services. So as the Internet arrives uh, to their locations, which it is poised to do very quickly over the next couple of years, uh, that's really transformative. Yeah, as I started looking at the book, I was amazed, and, I, and I, it took me back about... I don't know, 12 or 13 years ago, I had the privilege of being part of a group of journalists that went to, uh, went to Kenya and to Uganda. And I can remember being out at a Maasai village in Kenya, and many of the villagers had cell phones that had faster service than my cell phone had <laughs> back in the United States. And that was in 2006 or 2000, 2007. And I asked one of the villagers, you know, is this, he says, well, yes, we have this. This is the only way we have to, to communicate across our vast open spanses in this part. Right. And, and there, I guess, was an investment of some sort in the infrastructure for that type of cellular activity because we were all amazed. We were here, this group from a university halfway around the world, and these folks in mud huts were getting much better cellular service than we got back home. <laughs> so, you know, you're... You're right. Kenya Kenya's done a great job uh, in promoting uh, cellular and, at this point, smartphones. They've done a particularly good job in moving financial services online. There's a, there's a very good online program which allows rural Kenyans to uh, save money in online banks, to pay uh, each other, at this point, to take loans, all through their either cell phones or uh, smartphones. So Kenya, Kenya's uh, one reason why we're quite encouraged that as other countries in Africa that don't have uh, access but will have it soon, uh, I hope we'll be able to replicate what you are seeing in rural Kenya. I was going to ask you because you talk about uh, a couple of different places in Africa in in the book and in your own um, experiences yep. there. Why? Obviously, several different. Um, different countries there within the within the continent, and I guess it, it much like elsewhere in the West, it, it does it vary from 
country to country as to how this type of investment in infrastructure has been has been developed over over time? Uh, it varies a lot. Uh, by and large, the the uh, urban areas now have pretty good connectivity. The big cities, uh, pretty much everywhere around the world, have good connectivity. But billions of people live in rural environments. Still live in villages, doing subsistence farming. Uh, those are the areas that will be uh, most impacted as uh, the internet is made available uh, to those areas. I find the book interesting because it's almost like part part travel log, part part primer on 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 how how this global interconnectivity will um, will will work. What is the future? Uh, uh, will enable this type of of access, and, and and maybe is there a difference between access and actually being able to access it? Yeah. So, um, the 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 technical leap that's about to happen is there's a number of companies that are planning to launch thousands and thousands of internet satellites. Uh, Elon Musk, his rocket company called SpaceX plans to launch up to 12,000 Internet satellites. Uh, Jeff Bezos at Amazon has said he plans to launch launch 3,000 Internet satellites. Uh, Others are involved as well. So there's, in essence, a a race to move the Internet from uh, land to space. And that will be happening over the next few years. Uh, As that becomes available, it will initially be... uh, you know, more expensive than many people can afford. Certainly schools will be able to afford it and government offices and businesses and uh, hospitals. Uh, but it'll be a little bit longer until the average person prices drop enough to the average person uh, can afford it. But prices are dropping quickly. I was in Malawi and I bought a pretty nice Android smartphone mm-hmm. uh, for under $50 that wasn't quite as nice as my iPhone, but it was pretty darn good. And certainly, if you've never seen any smartphone, it's a miracle. Jim, what does this expansion, uh, or I should say this soon-to-be um, access, what might it mean for, for places like um, areas in China or North Korea or places where the governments have really clamped down on what, if there is a avail- web available, what then can be accessed locally. Are are we just creating the access, or are we going to create, or will it still be filtered, or, or how will those types of things work out? Do you think? So that's a that's a very good question, um, Jeff. The, in North Korea, in in China, they have access. They they control access to the global internet. Uh, they're able to do that now because. Uh, the Internet comes in through fiber optic cables, comes into government uh, stations, computers, mm-hmm. and so they can manage it that way. As the Internet moves to other technologies, including these Internet satellites, I, I think it's still an open question exactly what that will mean. Technically, they're still responsible. The, con- the, the, the countries are still responsible for uh, allocating the radio spectrum that these satellites we use over their territory. But um, I think that it will be yet another technology that will be challenging for 
governments to fully control. I should ask you. Um, you talked a little bit about how the how the cost of this is 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 uh, fairly reasonable in, in in places. But as this rolls out, I'm thinking. I know here locally, if you wanted to, if you're having to get your internet access via satellite as opposed to uh, cable access or, or or cellular access from one of the current providers, that those satellite internet providers, it's very expensive, and and the the bandwidth is not necessarily all that great and I'm just wondering how that how that economic model plays out if it's going to be expensive or because it's going to be available widely that it, it won't it then economies of scale and it, it won't be as maybe as prohibitively expensive yeah you're, you're right Jeff that current internet satellite is expensive and it's slow uh, and the promise for this new generation of internet satellite is that it will be uh, much, much faster uh, and much less expensive. The reason it's faster is rather than launching a few really expensive satellites that are in orbit far from Earth, the companies are planning to launch lots of cheap little satellites that are close to Earth uh, that really act much more like cell towers in many ways because they're, they're much closer. So. This is still uh, uncertain exactly how, how it will work, uh, although billions and millions of dollars are being invested. Uh, about three weeks ago, Elon Musk launched uh, the first 60 satellites sure. of his network, mm -hmm. and uh, things are moving forward very quickly. Obviously, we've seen, we've seen technology and, and the whole advent of social media explode in the, in the past decade. But what role do some of the big players in social media, and I'm thinking probably specifically Facebook and, I don't know, maybe Instagram or Twitter, what role do they play in, in the advancement of this infrastructure and, and being able to get their products to a wider range of people via having this kind of global Internet? You know, the big platforms, Google... Facebook, uh, they they play a, a big role, obviously, in uh, here in the U.S. They play really a dominant role in most of the developing countries. In many countries, Facebook is so successful and just starts to dominate to such an extent that the majority of the population don't even know there is anything else in the internet other than Facebook. Mm -hmm. They do polls about this, so Facebook. Uh, is is really the, 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 the huge player as this is expanding. Uh, there's a lot of good things that happen when Facebook becomes available for free. Uh, businesses can post pages. Uh, communications become much easier. Uh, there's lots and lots of advantages uh, and lots of good that comes from that. But there's also a lot of problems. Uh, for example, in Myanmar, this sort of poor rural country in Southeast Asia, it, it very quickly had Internet uh, coverage from 10% to 90% over about two years. Facebook dominated, and Myanmar, with a history of uh, ethnic tension between a number of groups, Facebook quickly filled up with hate speech, targeted mostly at this one minority called the Rohingya, and that led to uh, violence against the Rohingya mm -hmm. 700,000 Rohingya in August 2016 had to flee the country for their lives and are now living in the world's largest refugee camp in southern Bangladesh next door. So 
social media, lots of good things can happen, but lots of really ugly things can happen too. And unfortunately, Myanmar is the the clearest example of some of the perils that we face. I can think of all of the um, just w- very positive, transformative things that that access can bring, especially to to third world countries and others that are are extremely extremely isolated, but. Also, have to think and wonder, though, about we see what is the side effect of of in truly invasive social media and the impacts it's having on our social structure and and other structures within the United States and and the West. And I just wonder, are there implications to be weary of in terms of socialization as this then? begins to spread or access into this begins to spread globally? Uh, I think there's a lot of things to be wary of. Um, in our country, we're familiar with uh, not only the issues of, sort of social dynamics, social isolation, but also just outright fraud and fake news and election tampering. Uh, I mentioned uh, concerns of violence, which is uh, a big issue in many developing countries as the Internet appears. Uh, the, the good news is we should be able to prepare for these things. We know about them now. There are steps that we can take to address many of these challenges. Uh, and, the, and the good news also is that if you're a uh, living in rural Malawi, let's say, which is one of the places I visited in the book, mm-hmm. uh, and life really hasn't changed a whole lot in your subsistence farming existence over the last few hundred years. There are now really all sorts of new opportunities for for commerce, for information, for opportunity for your children, better health care, better education. Uh, overall, it's really a tremendous story. In looking at this and in, in, in understanding that there are all these different um, um, proponents that have various interests in trying to make all of this happen, what are we talking about in, in terms of, of investment in order to make this happen? Are we, are this, is this in the billions of dollars or trillions of dollars in order to provide this, this type of access? And is it something that you think is happening uh, organically, or is, or is there a, a, a business motivation for, for making this happen? Uh, there's a big business motivation. The, the, the companies that are building satellites uh, are spending billions of dollars. Uh, I think the Estimates are that a full constellation of many thousands of satellites would be somewhere between five and ten billion dollars, something like that, which honestly is not a very big investment for them, given that they're then replicating much of the internet uh, in space and have access to now three billion more people. There's certainly also investments in handset makers, in software companies. Uh, those are mostly paid for by the end users that uh, have demonstrated that they're able to spend a little bit for a device and a little bit each month for connectivity. And so I think the, the, the economics of this are not the big uncertainty here. There's some technical questions that still have to be answered. Uh, there's many policy issues that are tricky, uh, but it, this is going to happen. It is happening uh, as we speak. Uh, it's really just a matter of how many months it will all take? As you refer to it, the, the great connecting is 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 happening in your, in all of your travels. And I guess I should maybe this may be a, a simple question, but are, are we ready for this? 
Uh, no. <laughs> I, I would say we're not. Uh, we should be. We. Th- this is one reason why I, I wanted to write the book, Jeff, is we see this is coming. There's this sort of tsunami of Internet about to hit 3 billion people. And if we do nothing about it, we know what's going to happen, which is all sorts of good things will happen, and a lot of really bad things are going to happen. Uh, so if we take steps now uh, to augment the good things that can happen and try to uh, con- constrain some of the bad things, then we'll all be much better off. But honestly, I think that very few people are recognizing how quickly all this is going to happen. Uh, the governments don't really know what's coming. The tech firms themselves are more concerned with actually getting the systems up and going than thinking about what some of the secondary effects of all of this, all of this will be. So, uh, no, I, I would say uh, we are not really preparing nearly as well as we should be. So is it is it kind of safe to say it's uh, it's complicated? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's complicated. I, I, I don't want that to uh, give the impression that uh, it's, a, it's a pessimistic scenario overall. I think that the fact that half of the world's population is about to join the other half in a very meaningful way for the first time is really an epic story that we should uh, recognize and we should celebrate. Um, and that said, uh, it's complicated. That's Jim Cashel. His new book is The Great Connecting, The Emergence of Global Broadband and How That Changes Everything. It's published by Radius Book Group New York and is available now. In the Author's Voice is a reoccurring online series by WSIU. I'm Jeff Williams.